0: Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We're proud to say that today's episode is brought to you by JustWorks. JustWorks helps businesses take care of their benefits, healthcare, payroll, and HR. It's super simple and powerful. We use it and we love it. And this podcast really is way more than just Jerry. So we wanted to take this opportunity to introduce you to more of our team and hear their experience in using JustWorks.
1: I'm Allie Schultz, and I am the COO of Reboot. JustWorks makes my life insanely easy. It's every HR solution I have ever wanted in one place, including my benefits, and I don't have to think about HR things at all.
0: And how does your experience with JustWorks compare to other providers that you may have used in the past?
1: I've tried two of the largest HR solutions in the market, and um, the time that it has taken out of my life to use both of those programs is maddening to me. Um, back then, um, which was only just a couple of years ago, I remember thinking to myself, this really doesn't need to be as complicated as it is. And I was hoping that someone would create what JustWorks has created. I feel like it is going to give life and uh, a newfound sense of joy and freedom to HR professionals around the globe.
0: Well, you hear how much Allie loves JustWorks. And a happy alley is a happy reboot. If you're ready to grow your business and not your busy work, head over to Reboot.io slash JustWorks. You'll find out more about how we use JustWorks and how it could work for you. That's Reboot.io slash JustWorks. This is the temple of my adult aloneness. And I belong to that aloneness as I belong to my life. There is no house like the house of belonging. And that's from David White's poem, The House of Belonging. What's it like to find your path of authentic service in the world? What if you could tap into your wholeness, your fears, your wounds, your purpose, and build a company from that place? What if you could use the pain of the past, a pain of not knowing where you fit in, of not knowing where you belong, to propel you toward work that makes a difference? Well, it might look a lot like what Tanisha Robinson and her team are building with Prince Syndicate. Started just two and a half years ago with eight people, Prince Syndicate now has over 140 employees and will generate more than $20 million in revenue this year. But the company isn't just about shirts and home goods. It's a place where people, including a black gay woman from a Mormon family of seven in a small town in Missouri, have a place to self identify and a place to belong. It's a place where they can find proof that they are not alone. As Tanisha shares, running a company fueled by your passion to make the world better is both exhilarating and heart-wrenching. In this podcast, I am thrilled to welcome my friend Tanisha, one of my favorite entrepreneurs, in a conversation with Jerry. They discuss Tanisha's path to building Prince Syndicate, as well as the power and pain of connecting who you are, what you deeply care about, and what you do. Enjoy. Enjoy.
2: Hey Tanisha, it's really great to have you on, and and thank you so much for for joining us and um, taking the time. I, I know it's a it's a fast growing company, and and it's it's really helpful when entrepreneurs take time out and like talk about some of these things. Not only for you, but as as we you know we're talking about before we hit the record button, the notion of just sharing that experience with other entrepreneurs and and really uh, talk about that. So before we begin, why don't you tell us a little bit about Print Syndicate and yourself and, you know, what are some of the things that you're working through?
3: Yeah, so um, my co-founder, Mike, and I uh, founded Print Syndicate in November of 2012. And we actually worked together at a company with a sort of similar model. And I think it's an interesting sort of distinction I often point out. Often you don't have to be an inventor to be an entrepreneur. You can just take a existing model. And if you have a better idea for it, it might be a promising business. And that's kind of how we came up with the idea for print syndicate. And um, so we worked for a company that was like cafe press or Zazzle where anyone could upload anything. And we had a different vision around how content should be created and, and what consumers might want. And so We started in in November 2012 and we had, um, us and a handful of artists and started generating content based on what we saw as trends in social media. And, um, you know, the other interesting kind of thing about our business is that it's, uh, we use all on-demand fulfillment processes. So everything is produced on demand. So it's, if you can round up enough money to do on-demand fulfillment, then it's a pretty good way to bootstrap. But, um, You know, so that's sort of the idea that we started with. Two years later, we had a very different version of what the model would be. I mean, it really took us a couple of years to nail down what we're actually doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now, really, we are in the business of self expression, but we focus heavily on trends and social identities. So the example I, I often give is here in Columbus, if you're a Buckeye fan, There are a thousand places to buy Buckeye t-shirts, but if you're an introvert or a feminist or a science geek, we are kind of the only creator of really well-designed products for people that want to express those elements of their social identity. We kind of think about ourselves as kind of the makers of products for unserved social identities. And, um, you know, so we spend a lot of time thinking about that, that, you know, people want to belong and the internet has allowed for these tribes of people, and even very tiny tribes of people, to convene in really unprecedented ways, and um, and they want to express their belonging to those tribes instead of sort of the um, kind of old-school Abercrombie and kind of tribes for the masses. And so that's what we do, but we kind of outwardly look like a portfolio of niche brands that sell t-shirts and home goods and, and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, like the underlying premise of our business is that people want to express themselves in unique ways. You know, I, <laughs> I feel
2: like, um, you know, I've stumbled upon someone who's already read the end of the book <laughs> um, because I love what you just what you just described. Not only congratulations on the business, the business is, is doing well, you'll do over $20 in revenue forecasted this year. And that's fantastic. But I can't help but just jump right in. And you saw me scribbling through and writing a bunch of notes and, you know, words like we're in the business of self-expression. You know, I think you used the word social identity and identity about 12 times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that people want a sense of belonging and that, you know, there's the, there's the tribes for the masses, and then there's the tribes in which people actually feel like they belong. Um, that's powerful. That's powerful.
3: It is. I mean, and it, it's it's funny. It's, it's been a, a fun way to sort of close a loop in my life. I, I grew up in a small town in Missouri. I'm the second of seven in a very, very conservative Mormon family. I have six brothers and sisters, too. <laughs> nice, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and in my in Liberty, Missouri, I, I wasn't really a great fit. It was kind of a Friday Night Lights football cheerleader, very, very traditional evangelical kind of town. And when I was in, in high school and, and junior high, AOL chat rooms came out, and I was able to kind of find kids who were like me because um, there really were not kids who were like me in Missouri. And so, you know, that was kind of the first experience I had where I felt like, okay, there's, there's a bigger world out there. And, and there are people that I, I can get along with, even if none of them are in my high school, or maybe one of them is in my high school, <laughs> right. as it was, as was the case. And so, you know, I definitely, and, and I really struggled in high school because of that, because I didn't feel like I fit in. And, um, and I definitely didn't fit in. I mean, there's no sort of question about like, about that, but, uh, you know so it's been interesting to kind of be able to build a business around sort of thinking through people's desire to to belong and and you know it's it's interesting in the in the world right now because of the internet and because of social media counterculture is very mainstream and so it's you know I, I kind of wish that I was 20 years younger where it's cool to be a nerd and Cool to be smart and, right and, uh, you know, cool to be different. Um, because, you know, when I was in high school, it was definitely not. And, um, yeah, but it's, it's fun to be able to enable people's weirdness a little bit. If you don't mind,
2: could, could we explore a little bit, um, the way in which you were different?
3: Yeah. You know, so growing up Mormon, my, my parents really raised us, raised me. I have five younger sisters. They raised us to be Wives and mothers, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so you know, in the context, in, uh, in you know, from a, a cultural religious standpoint, I um, you know, really was more interested in a lot of other things. Um, you know, I didn't want dolls, I wanted Legos, and um, I didn't want to be raised to be a wife and a mother, I wanted to go to school and, and do stuff. And then, you know, in my small town, I like from the time I was very little, I thought I could. Change the world, and actually, this is a funny story. I, have, I was uh, in seventh grade, and I had to write my own obituary. Hmm. And I wrote, so, you know, for hmm. English class or whatever. And I wrote that I had done so much work in in helping the poor that people called me Mother Tanisha. And hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, and I really dreamed that I was capable of of doing something special, you know. And my mother was very, very negative towards sort of any aspirations I had towards towards or my parents were both really negative. And, and so, you know, like there was I was kind of raised in a very, very confined structure. And that didn't fit me or sort of what I dreamt for myself. Then in in the larger social structure, football oriented, cheerleader oriented, white high school that I went to. um, And I didn't even know that it was possible to be gay. So I just thought, well, it's easy to be approved. I'm not really interested in boys, um, you know, but even in terms of my coming to terms with my sexual identity, um, you know, it took a long time because I grew up in a very, very sort of suppressive and, and repressive environment. It, it wasn't okay to be myself and, and I didn't feel like I, I was. And, and so it was a huge struggle for a long time.
2: So I, you know, again, I, I want to be mindful and, and really respect your own self-identification. Um, part of my own journey through my own, as we were sharing before the recording began, becoming aware of my own unconscious biases, I want to make sure that that I am cognizant of the individual's identification. So what I've heard you identify as non-white and yeah. gay. Yeah. Um, and... Do you also identify as a woman? I do, yeah. yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, I think, and what I'm also hearing is identifying as someone outside the norm of Mormonism.
3: Oh, definitely, yeah.
2: yeah. Right. And so there, there's a, there's a, you know, I know in a, in a CNN interview you described yourself as hyper-marginalized. Are these yeah. the things that you were referring to?
3: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, and, and not that fortunately for the vast majority of my experiences, because I've had the good fortune to live in, in places where people are very open and, and smart enough to, um, you know, typically not cause problems. Um, you know, I think the, the when I refer to being hyper marginalized, it's really around the startup world that I function in. Yep. If we look at the percentage of VC funded startups the number of women, even co-founders not, not necessarily CEOs or black or gay um, or sort of in any category besides straight white dudes or Asian dudes um, is very 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 small and so um, you know it's it's a lot of times in my work that I am when I walk into the room I'm the only black or woman or gay person or you know kind of any among those categories and so, That's where I would say I feel like I function the margins, but not so much sort of day to day living here in in Columbus, Ohio.
2: But is that is I I hear that and I and and, and I'm curious, though, that because, you know, one of the things that that in working with clients that I often suggest is something that I found that you did almost immediately, which was connect to a deeper sense of purpose when you were describing the company mission. Yeah, and that's what I sort of leapt on, and and to me that so I'm making a, a an association here, and 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 tell me if this is right, that um, creating a service for people to find social identity and a sense of and therefore a sense of belonging. Um, isn't just a business opportunity, but it, there's something connective there for you. Is that right?
3: It's, that's totally true. And, and it's a huge driver because, you know, I mean, personally, I'm not interested in being in a t-shirt company, like owning a t-shirt company that that's not right. um, even appealing to me. Um, and so, you know, there, there has to be more purpose than that. We sell shit and make money mm-hmm. uh, because business building takes so much sacrifice in terms of time and, and seeing people and, and mental energy And so the opportunity cost is very high based on like anything else I could be doing in the world. And so, um, you know, for me, it has to be more than just that we sell stuff. And, um, you know, and then beyond that, as like my whole sort of purpose in, in being an entrepreneur is that the company itself can be a lever for impact. I mean, that's been a huge learning for me as we've grown that um you know we have 140 people but we also have a force of 140 volunteers and we have a force of 140 donors and and we also have some talents that allow us to offer unique things in support of our community and causes that we care about and um so not only do we have a business and do I get to work in a business and run a business that I think serves a a good purpose and does a positive thing in the world? I think, you know, then we also have a a lever as a, as a fast growing company to, to make a difference as we build this thing. And, um, you know, so I think it's very intertwined really. Yeah.
2: I I can, I can, I can feel that the interrelationship and the interdependence of, of, of sort of the inner and the outer here at, at the same time, and that, you know, many people who follow my, my work know that I'm a huge fan of my friend Parker Palmer, and he often talks about when the inner and the outer are incongruent with each other, that there's, a, that, that there's this powerful um, opportunity that emerges, not only for the individual self-actualization, but for the community, for the organization, for the organism. To really live itself out and he refers to not only the the inner the stuff that we're proud of but also the pain and the stuff that we've placed back in the shadow and i i i feel like i'm i'm speaking with a ceo who kind of just shrugs his shoulders and goes, yeah of course <laughs>
3: yeah i think uh it's been, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily, a, well, actually, you know, it is, it, I mean, it's something that to me, it seems totally natural. And like, why else would I build a business that I don't deeply believe in my bones? Um, but you know, I think it's something that might be a, a unique feature as, as a woman. And, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know like what the reasons are, but I know that, um, I wouldn't invest my life savings and all of my time and energy and effort and make sacrifices for a thing that didn't really make a difference. Um, you know, cause there are a lot of ways to go out and make money in the world. And so to pick the hardest path, <laughs> I think that the challenge with being an entrepreneur is like, yes, one in 10 is kind of successful or one in a thousand really. And then for a lot of folks, it's just a highly public failure. And, you know, sort of dive into that and then, you know, at such great risk to my reputation and, and my hopes and dreams and, and sort of all of that, that, you know, I can't imagine doing it any other way.
2: Mm. That's really beautiful. It's admirable. It's, um, you know, it took me a long time, a long time to get to the point where my work self more closely matched my inner self. And I think I'm there now, but, um, I think I, you know, and looking back, I think that, that, uh, it, it took me a long time. I, you know, so I just, I, I, I just admire that. I really do.
3: Yeah. I think, you know, for me, it's been interesting because, um, there, there are some aspects of my inner self that, um, you know, that people gauge and, and measure a judge that, you know, that we sort of talked about earlier, which is like, I'm a black woman. I have a fro, I have a wife. And so, you know, there's a lot of things about me that people measure and look at um, that, you know, I think are just kind of very inherent parts of who I am, but that people pay attention to. And so, you know, like I can't hide some of these major, major elements that some people um, react negatively to. And so, I found that it's like, well, you know, I can't, there is no sort of like, well, there's the, I've got the conservative white dude business version of me. And then, yeah, 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 <laughs> and then yeah. the real version of me. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, like I can't, so there's, it's, it's harder to fake Yeah. Uh, for me because I look the way I do and, and function the way I do. Um, so that's why I've just decided to dive in on being who I am because yeah. it's, it's too hard to try to negotiate through the world any other way.
2: It I, I love that that expression of it. it you know, it, in in a sense, and without minimizing at all any any of the challenges you've experienced. In a sense, I hear you describing it as easier. Um, the word that occurs to me is truer. Yeah. More yeah. authentic in that in that sense. So, I also. I'm aware that you said something before we actually started recording, which I thought was really powerful, which was – and so this stuff that we've been talking about, this is about 5% of the challenge.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Tell me yes. about the 95%. <laughs> okay. Oh, <God. Yeah. laughs> and, and, uh-oh, here comes Jerry. He's going to start coaching. <laughs> yes,
3: I'm, I'm in. So, you know, um, I'm in the current – challenges we're facing down now are up until the end of last year, we were a management team of two. And so we rounded up a bunch of people that are really smart in their respective territories. And we're like, okay, go. And, you know, trying to impart knowledge and strategy so that everyone is moving in the same direction at the same time is infinitely harder than it looks even when everyone believes in the business, even when you have people that are super smart with 10 or 15 years experience, and even when you communicate on a regular basis to try to maneuver for the singular purpose, um you know, in the in the midst of tons of tiny projects is uh you know a huge thing that we're gonna probably be solving for years. Um, you know, and so it's it's sort of this problem that we've created for ourselves which we we have to solve for but uh you know it's a it's a really really tough one
2: so how does it show up as a as a challenge what are what are some of the things that happen
3: yeah i mean in microcosm you know it's like all right we're going to launch this project and there's not necessarily coordination before and then people are moving in sometimes opposite or competing directions and and it takes twice or three times as long to get the thing done. And then it's not necessarily done in the way that anyone is particularly happy with or in a way that aligns with sort of the longer term infrastructure or context of the thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so it's like instead of moving forward, we spin our wheels or move and, you know, pull things apart or move in different directions. And it's, uh, you know, so that's um, a super tough one is, you know, when you got, I mean, so two and a half years ago, we were eight people and to now be at 140 and try to wrangle all of that. You know, it's a very, very intense um, learning experience to try to l- learn how to manage um, because it's it's so, so different. Mm.
1: Mm.
2: What's the hardest part of that?
3: Um, I think it really just, I, I think that it's, that, that there is no one that will know the business or the long game better than Mike and I do. And so to try to convey that so that people can think about what they're doing in the larger context of what we're trying to do is is super, super tough.
2: What makes it so tough?
3: Um, I think it's really just trying to get everyone – on the same page all the time because we iterate so often. And, you know, so there are things that I see that, um, you know, both in the world and in the business that may change, like nudge our direction slightly in on a weekly basis. And so to try to constantly convey those tiny iterations, which ultimately at the size that we have, have a, massive ripple effect if we, you know, if we don't get them right is,
2: uh, is hard. And, and when you see that it's not being gotten right, how does that make you feel?
3: Oh, it's, I mean, it's frustrating and it's, it's super discouraging because, um, we are capable of, of, I think we, I mean, I know that we are really, really onto something and that we are fulfilling this very special place in the market. And so to, not be doing it fast enough and not be doing it uh, big enough and not to be doing it as well as we possibly can, especially with the team that we we have is um, very frustrating.
2: So can, can, can I respond more coach-like with you? Yeah, Uh, please. So two separate threads that I want to respond to. I hear you. I really do hear you. And, and the first thing that I want to say is that there's a theme that I've been working with lately, um, there's a talk I've been doing called Standing Still While Your Hair's On Fire, Surviving Life in a Startup, and The Paradox of Caring. And the Paradox of Caring, I think, is really important here. Caring and connecting so much with deep purpose creates an enormous amount of energy. And as you know, I've explored with other guests in, in the podcast. By reaching back into our pain, by reaching back into our shadow, we actually access creativity and spontaneity that would otherwise be not available to us. Because we're accessing the wholeness of who we are as a human being, and we're bringing that forward. And I think a lot of the success of uh, syndicate stems from the fact that you guys almost from the beginning are sort of accessing disenfranchisement, accessing not belonging, accessing a sense of dislocation and with love and humor finding ways to connect with there and that's powerful the problem with caring so much and here's the paradox part is that it actually increases the stress
3: yes cuz yes. what
2: happens if you fail yeah right so not only do you carry the burden of failure of oh i lost all this money oh i'm going to be penniless and homeless and the laughing stock of my town but i'll have let down this community that I care so much about. And, you know, it reminds me of, of a poster that, that a client once said to me, which was, stress is caused by giving a fuck.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right.
2: Yeah. If we didn't give a fuck, we wouldn't be so damn stressed.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, people that clock in and clock out and don't care are not stressed at all.
2: That's right. Well, <laughs> well there's the stress. Let's be fair to them. There's the stress of dehumanization. Yes. Which yes. is a different stress. Right, it's a kind of violence. So it's a dehumanization. So that is there, but yes, by the people who actually manage to really actually not care about anything, and float along. I I I envy them. Yeah. So yeah. there's that point that I wanted to share. The other piece I wanted to share is is to take you back to this other thing, which is. And it reminds me of something a client once said to me, which was you mean I have to tell them the vision again? (laughs) And the answer is yes.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: Right? So you've probably heard me say this, but I'll say it again. There's three functions that you have as a CEO. The first is to hold and promulgate the vision. And that means our values, our purpose, our sense of why, our sense of the future, our sense of differentiation, our sense of who we are on the planet, as an organization. And when I say hold and promulgate, I mean literally with your body, yeah. with your being every day in how you walk and how you talk and who you engage with and who you hire and what that process is. So it gets embodied in everything. Yeah. And the other two tasks are to build and maintain the team and then, lastly, give them the resources that they need. Which goes beyond money, but goes yeah. to clarity and prioritization. So part of the challenge is realizing that you have stepped into the practice of being a CEO. Yeah. Yeah. And the word practice is really important because you actually never achieve it.
3: Yes. I have a, <laughs> I have a sense that that's, it's a totally unachievable thing. But, it's uh, totally unachievable. So yeah, I mean it's it's been interesting to sort of actually move through it and, and move into this place where I get to zoom out a little bit and really think about those three things. Um, because, you know, especially in the early days, it's like I'm also the shipper and the trash picker upper right. right. and sort of so many other very, very functional things of just getting stuff that needs done that needs to be done. And um like I, I would say now it, for the first time and like the first within the two and a half years. Um, so really in the past four or five months has been where I feel like I get to really think through and move through those those particulars of the role.
2: Right. And, and a lot of folks will then find themselves in the very difficult position of saying, well, what what value do I add every day?
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: Right? And, and, you know, I joke with people that I kind of want you bored at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon and going, you know, maybe I'll go home and hang out with my wife. <laughs> because the goal is to get the machine operating in such yes. a way that the drama is minimized, right? And then it's a kind of it, – it, we go from this hyperactivity – Up and down, up and down roller coaster to a kind of equanimous state where we just kind of like blip, 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 up and down, up and down, and we have some fun, and then we go home, and we have a life, and we go have dinner, and we laugh, and we make love, and we have fun. Yeah,
3: yeah, you know, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I, I can, um, I can see the path through the woods to that, uh, to that. I, you know, we're starting to get into a good spot with our team and, um, you know, giving people the context and the information they need to make the decisions yeah. that they are supposed to. And so to be able to hand off decision-making and, and a lot of the process work is um, something I'm really looking forward to. Yeah. Yeah. So that process
2: and, and the the dialectical tension between doing that and the feelings that arise, which is what am I doing? Yeah what, yeah. what? Is this right? I, am I that tension point? That's part of the practice as well. Mm, yeah. Right? So, point. part of your job is to actually bear the feelings that arise without turning the team into an object of your narcissistic, neurotic tendencies.
3: Yeah. <laughs> right?
2: And by the way Who told you? Yeah. <laughs> well, Guilty as charged. <laughs> yeah, Not only exactly. with my colleagues at Reboot, but with my family, with oh, my yeah. friends, right? Because that—that—that's our work, right? Yeah. It's like the feelings arise: anxiety, sadness, anger, and and what do we? What? Do, where do we create the most suffering? It's when we don't know what to do with those feelings, and then we project them out. Or as my friend Parker Palmo says. Violence is what we do when we don't know what to do with our suffering.
3: That explains why my favorite workout is a heavy bag.
2: There you go. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's what you do with your suffering. <laughs> Hit the
2: damn heavy bag. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. and actually, yeah, <laughs> there, there is something powerful in what you just said because, because the path is actually to get out of your head – yeah. And into your body,
3: yeah,
2: because the body is where it, all that feeling is going to get stored up, and that's why you know you know so much of of good coaching will 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 pull people in and say, "Great, did you go for a run?
3: Yeah,
2: did you do some yoga?" And it's not just for like Namaste, Oom, yeah. you know, like Don Draper at the end of Mad yeah, man Yeah, yeah, Spoiler oh, yeah. Spoiler alert, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not <Much> a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that. It's. Yeah. It's really, how do I be with all of this stuff that has charged up? Because what most leaders end up doing is, and we joked before, turn the organization into an object of their narcissistic neuroses.
3: Yeah, and I mean, I think that there are so many cautionary tales of that, that, um, you know, for me, my biggest, I tried to be very, very introspective because, I mean, there's a term for it, it's founder syndrome, where the CEO becomes a toxic leader and, and it does more harm than good in the organization. And, um, you know, so I try, I, I'm trying and, and hope to, for a long time, be very mindful of like, that I might hit that moment where I am not the right leader anymore, or that I'm not in the right place as a human being to be the right leader anymore, to, you know, let the let my investment make gains and let my people be happy if I'm the hindrance to that, uh, or to the effectiveness of the organization. And I, you know, it's something I try to pay attention to. I I definitely wholeheartedly believe that I'm the right leader for this company right now. Um, but I don't know if that'll be the case in three years or five years.
2: so. So, so what I would suggest is this is why community is so important. This is why human beings as a species evolved in communities. Now, I'm a profound introvert, but even I need somebody to tell me when I've got a smudge of dirt on my nose, right? And community and creating the conditions within the organization where your co-founder, Mike, can go to you, hey, Tanisha, that thing you did, that wasn't cool. Yeah, yeah. Or this thing, this is not going on. And what do you mean it's not going and then you have, you have that, that point of contact. And that's what we, that's, you know, we often talk about what if work were a means for the self actualization, the full realization of ourselves as human beings, mm-hmm. including bringing our bag of tricks and our bag of shit forward and processing that. What if work were a process for you as a, as a human being to evolve to the full potential as a human being? community can help us do that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I think probably entrepreneurs get the closest to their work being or having the possibility of, of being, um, part of actualizing, uh, one's full potential. I mean, I think if I were working in a corporation or doing anything else, I I would be farther away from that than I feel like I am now.
2: I think you're right. I think I think one of the beauties and gifts of a startup organization is we do commit ourselves to creating a culture. Yeah. And you know, as I often say to clients, what kind of company do you want to work for? Cuz you get to create that every day.
3: Yeah, and it's 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 been very fun uh in our business. We have a lot of creatives, a lot of artists and uh and a lot of odd kids that mm. have found their place here. And, um, you know, and, and I think people really feel like they can come to work and truly be themselves <laughs> and, and be loved and accepted and valued for that. Um, and, you know, I would say it's one of the things I'm most proud of that we have have built as I look around at our team of, of misfit toys mm. and to see that, um, you know, they're happy and they have They've got a best friend at work, people to get lunch with, but um, you know, and and the, they also um, have a chance to dive into this purpose of of helping other people express themselves. But it's, um, you know, it's a pretty special and exciting thing, and it's something that we were, were very, very intentional about from the beginning. It was declaring our values and and really thinking through. Because uh, one of one of my mentors told me, even if you are in, if you're not intentional about your culture you will still have one. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, speaking of other cautionary tales, there are a lot of startups that just become really, really horrible places because no one's keeping an eye out for, for culture and um, and the experience of, of the people that show up to work every day.
2: I, I think that is beautifully, beautifully said, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, one of the things that, like that motivates me and gets me excited about the work that we try to do is to really – create a place for the Island of Misfit Toys, for, for the caboose with square wheels.
3: Yeah. Right?
2: <laughs> and, and we're both referring to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You yeah. Know? And, 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 you know, I always related to them. I, you know, I'm a white male of privilege. And yet I always related to the caboose with square wheels because I cry at the drop of a hat because I feel in a way that not everybody else feels. And because I'm an introvert, but I'm not shy.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: And people don't understand that when I withdraw, it's because I'm depleted.
3: Yeah, I'm a, I'm also a charismatic introvert is how I describe my yeah. personality. Because, you know, people are like, oh, you're so good with people. And that's totally true. And, you know, and I have unbelievable anxiety around public speaking and, mm networking events. I mean, you know, I was a kid who had a birthday party that no one showed up to. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those types of moments in in your really early years or my really early years were really, um, so painful. And I am perpetually like paranoid about ever facing that. Um, you know, because when you don't fit in and it's so hard and so humiliating. And so, um, you know, so then the idea of public speaking and um you know being a public facing figure for the business is is gives me very, very intense anxiety. And I do it because it's part of my role to tell our story. Um and you know, to be out in the community and and talk to our investors, talk to a lot of people and, and talk to the media. And um, you know, but it's it it the fear, even with all of the practice I've had at this point, the fear has has yet to go away.
2: So two, two things I would say to that. The way I've come to be comfortable as a public speaker is I really and truly pretend that I'm speaking to one individual. And I fix my eyes on that one individual. And the funny thing that's happened is all of a sudden I find myself, even if there's a distance of a stage, I find myself having a physical heart connection with that one individual. And that gives me sustenance enough to get through it.
3: Yeah, yeah. The,
2: the second thing I would say is, uh, is one of my favorite poems is a poem by David White called The House of Belonging. I won't bore you with the full reading of it, but there's a beautiful line in there, which is, there is no house like the house of belonging. And I belong there as I belong in my adult aloneness. And I love the notion of an adult aloneness because, to me, it's the, it's the, it's the notion of solitude versus loneliness.
3: It's exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So you resonate with that line as well? Eh? Totally.
3: Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and fortunately, my my wife is actually very extroverted, but she knows when I need time to do Legos. It's not right. playing Legos, by the way. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I know what you mean, though. <laughs> yeah. It's it's you know for me, it's it it might be modeling, it yeah. might be it, clay, it might yeah. it's something that that allows me to just sort of
3: <sighs> exactly. close the world. Absolutely, yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. I, I I I've so enjoyed talking with you.
3: Yeah, thank you so much, Jerry. This was awesome, and I appreciate the coaching.
2: Oh well, you know anything that I can do to support you in your process and. You know anything that Reboot can do to help you in that regard. You know, um, I'm really grateful for you coming on and 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 sharing who you are in this moment. And as I said before, I'm truly admiring of the way in which you're trying to live out your values in this way. It it, it is really wonderful.
0: So that's it for our conversation today. I know a lot was covered in this episode, from links to books, to quotes, to images. So we went ahead and compiled all that and put it on our site at reboot.io podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can find out about that on our site as well. I'm really grateful that you took the time to listen. If you enjoyed the show and you want to get all the latest episodes as we release them, head over to iTunes and subscribe. And while you're there, it would be great if you could leave us a review, letting us know how the show affected you. So thank you again for listening, and I really look forward to future conversations together.
1: How long